Jesus Christ. By doing this, he gave him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. So Jesus, after his death, burial, and resurrection, ascended into the heavens, was crowned King of kings and Lord of lords, and given a kingdom. And the Bible teaches that Jesus will one day come again, and he will establish the kingdom here upon the earth. And how you and I live in the context of the first and second coming of Jesus will actually determine what we do in the coming kingdom when Jesus does indeed come. So we want to be faithful to serve the Lord and to follow hard after Him. Now, this morning we're going to begin to see God's divine hand at work, even in the context of His Son, Jesus, being rejected vehemently by those who opposed Him. So Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, beginning in verse 66. If you'll stand with me in honor of God's Word, get a good bit of Scripture here. So I want you to listen closely to what the Word says. So you got it there in front of you. Say yes. The Bible says, when it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led Jesus away to their council chamber, saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. And then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we've heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, it is as you say. And then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. And when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus for he had wanted to see Jesus for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length and he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day. For before they had been enemies with each other. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. Nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. And they kept calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them a third time, Why, what evil has this man done? For I have found no guilt demanding death. Therefore I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent. 
with loud voices asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Let's bow together. Father, uh, this morning we gather in this Christmas season. And we are reminded that Jesus came to the earth indeed as a child. But grew as a man in wisdom and in stature, tempted in all ways as we are, yet he was without sin. And Jesus went to the cross. That was his destination from the beginning of time. And God, this morning as we look at the text of Scripture, I pray in the name of Christ that you would unveil, open the eyes of those who are blind to the truth of who you are. Give them grace that they might enter into the kingdom and be radically changed. And Father, at the same hand, I pray in the name of Jesus that you push your hand upon us and encourage us as your followers to announce the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us that we might be redeemed. God, thank you for the great privilege of being involved in the church, which is the pillar of truth and the mouthpiece of the gospel to the nations. We pray that we are faithful to deliver that truth. We ask that you would do a great work in our hearts today, transforming us, making us more like your son. And Father, we pray that you'd fill me with your Holy Spirit, grant me the strength to accomplish the task at hand, and we'll give you glory for it. And it's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray, and everybody said... So you can be seated this morning. The great coronation. Do you know, in less than nine hours, Jesus was tried a total of six times, and then he was sentenced to death. Think about that for just a moment. Do you know, it could take several years for a person in our judicial court system to be found guilty and sentenced to death. But in Luke's gospel, we see it going down in nine hours. He was tried by the Jewish religious authorities. You see, after his arrest, he was taken to the house of Annas. Annas was the former high priest in the Jewish temple and at the time held great clout and authority among the chief priests. Then after his visit there, Jesus was quickly paraded in front of Annas' son-in-law, Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the current high priest in Jerusalem and held the greatest weight within the Jewish community. Then Jesus was taken before the Sanhedrin, which was a group of religious and sometimes political figures set aside to judge people in the Israelite community. And while the Romans held the greatest authority over most of the known land, they still gave distinct permission to certain sects of people to continue their judicial systems as before. This kept Roman authorities from becoming weighed down by the internal struggles of certain sects of people. However, one thing the Sanhedrin could not do was place a sentence upon the Lord Jesus to be crucified or to be put to death. Jesus fell in this moment in time under the religious authorities, uh, not of the Sanhedrin, but of the civil authorities. So he was tried by the religious authorities and then he was also tried by the civil authorities. Jesus was carried before Pilate and falsely accused as being one to lead an insurrection against the Roman authorities. Pilate sent Jesus to be tried before Herod because Jesus actually belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. And after making fun of the Lord Jesus, Herod had him dressed up like a clown king and sent back to Pilate. And then Pilate gave the growing crowds an option to choose between two men for the death penalty. One was Barabbas, the other was Jesus. 
Now, as I look at this text of Scripture, I'm always amazed at how quickly the crowds turned upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Just a few days before the crowds were shouting, Crucify Him, Crucify Him, Jesus was hailed as a great king when entering into Jerusalem. In fact, if we just remind time a few days prior, we find on Sunday that they laid down their palm branches in praise and honor of King Jesus. They shouted to the rooftops, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, save us now. On Monday, those of a religious persuasion heard of the excitement surrounding this so-called king of the Jews and they became indignant to say the least. And then on Tuesday, Jesus would stand toe-to-toe with the religious persons in the temple and he would literally throw over the money changer's table and then ask by the Sanhedrin and many other religious officials in that day, who gives you the authority to do such things? Then with hatred in their hearts and rebellion in their lives, they made a choice to pursue the life of the Lord Jesus. They wanted this King Jesus dead. Then on Wednesday, an unnamed woman in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, came into the house where Jesus was staying. She poured out her expensive perfume upon the feet of Jesus and she worshipped him there. And it was in the silence of her worship that we hear the voice of Judas speak up, saying we should have sold the money, or sold rather the perfume and gotten money and given it to the poor. And then Thursday, Thursday evening to be exact, prior to the Passover meal, with Jesus, Judas began his unforgettable betrayal. Then on Friday, the Lord Jesus Christ is led like a lamb to the slaughter. And you and I now are reading about Thursday evening and Friday morning in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is indeed being led away to be slain by men. Now upon first read, any individual may be shocked to find out what's going on in the life of Jesus Christ as they see Jesus being mocked and ridiculed and being sentenced to death. In fact, I've heard of a a particular culture that had never heard the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. They lived in huts in the bush. The missionary there started from the book of Genesis and taught through the whole life of God. The Father calling Israel to Himself, making them a mouthpiece, showing all of their struggles and their difficulties. And then Jesus arriving on the scene. And then Jesus going to the cross. And there in that particular culture, those individuals were exceedingly angry at what was happening in the story in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as God the Father oversaw what was happening in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22 and 23, God the Father was not by any sense shocked or dismayed at what was taking place. See, the Bible teaches us that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So God the Father, before creation ever existed, understood that His Son Jesus Christ would come and actually be a ransom for the sins of many going to the cross, there dying the penalty of our sin, which is death. So as God the Father sees the truth unfold, history unfold, He is not knocked off of His throne or surprised one bit. This was all in His plan. But the question would be, why? Why? Were the individuals rejecting Jesus so vehemently? Why were the religious elite so hostile toward Jesus? Jesus was refused and rejected 
by the religious elite and ultimately by Israel. And what we find here this morning is that Jesus' rejection by Israel was God's divine plan to open up the doorway of the gospel to Gentiles throughout the world. As well, we know Jesus' crucifixion paid for the sins, granting believers access into His kingdom. And so as we look at our text this morning, there are two major truths that I want to hopefully place on your heart and cause you to ponder both of them growing in your walk with the Lord Jesus. So here goes the very first truth this morning. Their rejection, their rejection, speaking of Israel, their rejection of Jesus opened the door for our inclusion into the kingdom. Their rejection opened the door for our inclusion. You know, Paul notes for us that Israel's rejection of Jesus actually opened the door for Gentiles to be included in the kingdom of God. He writes in Romans 11, 11, but by their transgression, speaking of Israel, by their transgression, that is their rebellion, their rejection of Christ as king, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if you are not of Jewish descent this morning, you are a Gentile. And because Israel chose to reject Jesus Christ as king, the Bible teaches that their rejection actually opened the doorway of salvation to us as Gentiles so that we might be included in the kingdom of God. And God, by His grace, would pour out spiritual blessing upon the church, those who would trust Jesus Christ as Savior. And through this pouring out of a spiritual blessing, God was, in a sense, causing Israel to be jealous for His honor. It's amazing as we look at this, what is happening in history, which has so caused you and I to live differently even on this day. See, the rejection of Jesus is clearly seen in the events of the New Testament. We see them abundantly clear in Jesus' trials. But who are they rejecting? Who are they turning against? Well, we find first that they are rejecting God's appointed judge. God's appointed judge they are rejecting. Look at verse 66 in your Bible, Luke 22. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled both chief priests and scribes, and they led Jesus away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, then tell us. Now the term Christ was the term used to designate the coming of the king of the Jews. The problem here is that Israel was looking for a king from David's dynasty to overthrow the Roman government. They knew Jesus was not going to come and do that. He didn't even have an army of men at this point. So they wanted Jesus to claim to be the Christ. In efforts, hopefully, to paint him into a corner and ultimately have him executed. So in verse 67, Jesus said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now this one statement would have infuriated the council who had gathered to put Jesus on trial. The reason it would have infuriated them is because Jesus was here quoting Psalm 110 in verse 1 and applying it to his own life. The term son of man was used to describe the role of ultimate judge over the universe. So the idea of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God's power was actually considered the pinnacle of exaltation in the kingdom of God. So Jesus was claiming that the people who are currently judging him would one day see him as the highly exalted judge over the universe, wielding the great and unstoppable power of Almighty God. 
Jesus was promising that one day he would actually judge them. For he indeed was the Son of Man, the judge over the universe. But they rejected him as judge and exalted themselves as judges of the judge. Do you know that is true as well today? When people hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the first things that we talk about is sin. The Bible teaches we are all born into sin. The scripture says we have all sinned and fallen short of God's holy standard. And the wages of our sin is death. And the one who judges our sin is Jesus. And yet there are people who say, no, no, no. The Lord will not judge my sin. He is an all-loving Lord. He's an all-gracious Lord, an all-merciful Lord. There's no way that he will ever judge me. And in a sense, when a person makes this claim, they are doing so outside of biblical boundaries. And in essence, what they are doing is exactly what they were doing when they put Jesus on trial as the council of Sanhedrin. Those individuals who are rejecting Jesus Christ as the judge are actually elevating themselves to be judge over the person of Jesus saying he can't be the judge. It's a very scary place to be in the hands of an angry God. It is a very fearful place to be if you are exalting yourself over the Lord Jesus Christ claiming that he himself cannot judge you. What a strong statement where we see here in the scripture, they are denying Jesus as the judge. You know, one commentator notes that when Jesus claims to be seated at the right hand of the power of God, these words represent the highest claim to deity. Jesus was declaring royalty in no uncertain terms, which leads us to note that they not only rejected God's appointed judge, but they also rejected God's only son. Verse 70, they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said, yes, I am. But Jesus identified himself with God by using the familiar title of God found in the Old Testament. I am. There are some people who say that Jesus never claimed to be the son of God. That is just not true. They have not read the Bible. Jesus makes a claim to deity clearly in this text. In fact... To those who were seeking to judge him, the claim was abundantly clear. In verse 71, they said, what further need do we have of testimony? We have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. What they were saying is quite simply, we don't need anyone to testify against Jesus. We have heard it ourselves. This Jesus has just committed blasphemy. He has made himself out to be God's son. He has claimed deity. This is not the first time Jesus has done this. Jesus did this in John's gospel. In John chapter 10, verses 30 through 33, the crowds there also became vehemently angry at the Lord Jesus Christ to the point where they began to pick up stones with a desire to stone him to death. And they stoned him, or sought to stone him rather, in John chapter 10, saying he is making himself out to be God. It's interesting. Those who claim that Jesus never said he was God, never claimed deity, have not read the scriptures under Jewish law by the way a person who committed blasphemy was to be stoned to death and the problem on this particular evening when the Sanhedrin were seeking to judge the Lord Jesus Christ is that although they could say our law says to stone him to death they still fell under the law of Rome and Rome although giving them Freedom to exercise their judicial system did not give them freedom to exercise capital punishment. 
Therefore, they had to bring the Lord Jesus before the Romans in an attempt to have him tried for execution. The problem is that the Roman authorities could care less about Jewish theology. So to throw Jesus before the Roman government and say he is claiming to be God's son, he is claiming to be deity, would not work. So they created another sin, another problem that hopefully the Romans would have listened to, and then they themselves would have put him on the tree. Which leads us to the third rejection. They rejected him not only as God's son, not only as the judge, but they rejected God's king. Chapter 23, verse 1, the Bible says, Then the whole body of them got up and brought Jesus before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, neither of these statements, by the way, are true. In fact, Jesus never encouraged people not to pay taxes. Jesus did just the opposite. They came to Jesus on one occasion and said, Jesus, should we pay taxes? He said, let us see the coin whose inscription is upon it. They said, Caesar's is. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So Jesus never sought to lead an insurrection against the Roman government. Therefore, they could find no other thing to execute him for. In fact, we see here, saying that he himself is Christ, the king. Pilate asked Jesus, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said, it is as you say. Jesus clearly claimed to be king of the Jews. However, in rejecting the king, and you've got to listen closely, in rejecting the king, the people of Israel were in fact rejecting the kingdom as well. And although Pilate didn't find any fault or reason for concerning Jesus, he sent him over to Herod for trial. Herod treated Jesus like he might be some sort of magician. He wanted to be entertained by the Lord Jesus Christ, hoping to see him do some trick that would dazzle his eyes and boggle his mind. But Jesus did not comply. He did not speak a word. Finally, Herod, seemingly in a fit of rage, placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ a robe to jokingly call him the king and sent him back to Pilate. See, they rejected him as the king. That's what people do today as well. They reject the Lord Jesus Christ as king. It's interesting as we look at these three rejections, the rejection of Jesus as judge, the rejection of Jesus as God's son, the rejection of Jesus as the king, they fall in line with what people reject Jesus for even today. So when an individual hears the gospel, just like they were vehemently opposed to Jesus in Luke's gospel, there are people even today vehemently opposed to Jesus. They don't want Jesus being the judge, so they claim that he is not the judge. They claim that Jesus cannot point out any sin in their life, that they were created this way. God should love them just the way that they've been created, even in their sin. So they reject Jesus. They reject him as the judge. They reject him as deity. They say Jesus was not indeed the Son of God. He was not God in the flesh. Jesus was a good man. He was a good prophet. But never could we say that Jesus was God. And yet the Bible makes it plain in John's Gospel, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed God in the flesh. And the Lord Jesus, God's Son, came in purity unlike any person in history. All of us are born through the seed of man, Romans teaches. 
And because we are born through the seed of man, the sin nature has been passed down to every single one of us. Yet Jesus, over 2,000 years ago, was not born from the seed of man. He was born from the Virgin Mary. And because of this virgin birth, Jesus was born without a sin nature. And Jesus, in absolute purity, lived among us, tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Jesus went to the cross, and there on the cross, Jesus Christ died. And yet people still reject Jesus as being God's Son. They reject Jesus as being pure. But ultimately, what they are doing is rejecting Jesus as King. For indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ is King over the universe. God the Father has granted Him a kingdom. God has granted Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. That name has been given to Christ the Son by His Dad. There's nothing that we can do to change that. He is the King. And God, by His grace in His Son, Jesus Christ, is inviting people to be a part of the kingdom. And when you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are bowing before the King of kings and Lord of lords. And at the moment of your genuine conversion, God sets up camp in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. And there, Jesus Christ reigns spiritually in your life. People don't want that. People don't want someone telling them how to live. So they reject Jesus as king. They say, He's not, I'm going to call my own shots. I'm going to do my own thing. Think the way I want to think. Talk the way I want to talk. Live the way I want to live. Walk the way that I want to walk. No one is going to tell me how to live. And it's that same rebellion that was happening in Luke's gospel and is still happening today. And even though they rejected Christ as king in Luke chapter 22, it did not erase the fact that He was the king. And even when people reject Jesus Christ today, it does not reject or erase the fact that He's the King. Our belief does not determine reality. Jesus is being rejected. And you know what's sad is that people are creating Jesuses today. By this, I literally mean that people are coming up with Jesuses that are outside of the biblical boundaries. So they are, in their own minds, fashioning a Jesus to follow. So they created Jesus who would never judge them for their sin. They created Jesus who was just like them. He wasn't deity. They created Jesus who was a good old homeboy, but not the King of kings and Lord of lords. And what happens here is that individuals fashion in their minds a Jesus, and then they call Him the King. And yet that is idolatry. That is not following the biblical Jesus. And I fear that there are Baptists, I fear that there are Methodists and many other denominations who have created a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible, and yet they are claiming to serve Christ the King. And one day they will die and stand before the true King. Their idol will be shattered. That's what was happening here. In Luke's Gospel, I've not seen it like this before, but ultimately what the Sanhedrin were doing was designing and creating their own king. We don't want Jesus. He's not the one we're looking for. This is the kind we want. They reject Christ. Now, the interesting fact is that the rejection Jesus faced was enormous. We see it all throughout the Gospels. 
It did not happen just here in the trials, but the Bible says Jesus came as the light of the world. And yet Israel did not desire to see the light. So they began to reject Jesus Christ and His teachings, so much so that the Bible teaches Jesus began to teach in parables so that they would not understand. Because they rejected the light of Jesus Christ, Jesus began to turn the lights out. And then as He is standing here on trial, their hearts have fallen into a stupor. They are in their own rebellion rejecting the light of the world. God, by His sovereign hand, has turned the lights out completely upon them so that they would reject Jesus. They wanted nothing to do with Him, wanted to rid the world of His existence. But what is wild here, and again, it boggles my brain that I would be up here trying to share this with you, but ultimately, God, by His grace, allowed Israel to reject Jesus Christ, His Son, Allowed Israel to put Jesus on the cross, be crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended. All of that so that, the Bible teaches, so that Gentiles could be invited into the kingdom. Their rejection opened the door for our inclusion. Their rejection of Jesus. Open the door for the inclusion of Gentiles into the kingdom. Their rejection became the birth of the church. Romans chapter 11 states that Israel was given a spirit of stupor so that they could not understand. So I said, how could God do such a thing? I would uh, refer you back to Job when they began to question the character and nature of God and say, how could God do such a thing? And then the scripture says, you see the alligator, don't you? Nobody questions what the alligator's doing. He's too powerful. Why would you question God? It's an amazing thought that God would even for a single moment invite any of us to be a part of His kingdom. As we study scripture, we find that it is Indeed, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity in perfect community, the Trinity is not lacking. God does not need you. God does not need me. He graciously chose to show Himself to the world. And some argue whenever they study the nature of God, why would God allow sin to even enter into the world? The answer is quite simply, I got no clue. Y'all down with that answer? I will tell you this much, God has great characters which you, characteristics which you and I would never have been able to see. He is a gracious, loving, merciful God. We would never have known that had sin not entered into the world. What is grace without sin? What is mercy without sin? God knows what He's doing. 
Israel rejected Jesus Christ, his son. He's not shocked. He planned for this. Jesus died on the cross, was buried, resurrected. Now, anybody who would place their faith in Jesus Christ is brought into the kingdom. God pours out spiritual blessing upon the church. The church is the company of the called out ones. And when the spiritual blessing is coming out, his grace, his mercy, all of this is supposed to make Israel jealous. Has God given up on Israel is often a question, and the answer is emphatically no, not at all. The Bible teaches in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that God has not given up on Israel. God has placed Israel to the side. Israel was supposed to be the mouthpiece of the gospel to the nations, but they refused Jesus. Now the church is the mouthpiece of the gospel to the nations. The Bible says that when the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled... That is, when the last Gentile comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that the rapture of the New Testament church will occur. So all of us who know Jesus will actually be raptured up to meet the Lord Jesus in the clouds. A seven-year tribulation will impend here upon the earth. And the whole point of the tribulation is for God to call Israel back to himself. And as Israel comes back together, all the nations are going to surround her in desiring to wipe her from the face of the map. But at the end of the seven-year tribulation, the Bible says that the King of kings and the Lord of lords is coming again. And it is when Jesus Christ comes that we as the church will actually come with him and we will come to the earth. And Jesus, by the word of his mouth like a sword, will do away with all of those opposing nations, redeem Israel unto himself, and all of Israel will be saved. It's interesting too, Zechariah prophesied of it in the Old Testament. He said, they, speaking of Israel, will look upon Jesus whom they have pierced and they will weep and mourn. Jesus is coming again. And isn't it amazing that he allowed us to be a part of it? The psalmist said it best. Who is man that God would be mindful of him? And yet he was mindful of all of us. Yet he is still mindful of you today. Even if you're here this morning still sitting in rebellion, still sitting in the fact where you're saying, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. Guess what? The door's still open, man. God is still graciously calling you to come into his kingdom, turn from your sin, bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do it now willingly. If you refuse to do so willingly, you will be made to do so in the future. Yes, all through the corridors of history, those who have rejected Jesus Christ will one day bend the knee. Stalin will bend the knee and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Hitler will bend the knee and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Even those in our current day who are creating their own religions like Tom Cruise will one day bend the knee and say, Jesus Christ is the Lord. Even those of you who are here today and you may be a great Baptist, but you don't know Christ. You will one day bend the knee and say, Jesus Christ is the Lord. All will. But their rejection in Luke's gospel here just reminds us of the fact that we are included. The church now has become the pillar and standard of the truth, positioned to share the news of who Jesus is to the world. That is our calling. And listen, you and I, as the New Testament church, a local church gathered, we cannot turn our back on the call of the church. They said, go and tell people how to be saved. That is the calling. We love people enough to tell them that they need to repent and come to Christ. 
It's like a loving church will never preach that message. No, no, no. A loving church only preaches that message. It's the unloving church that doesn't say anything about repentance and Christ. They don't care about a person's soul because their souls have not been changed yet either. Can I give you all the second truth? That was a question. Since the first one took way too long. Second truth, his crucifixion opened the door for our redemption. Now, if you ain't been paying attention, you need to pay attention now. His crucifixion opened the door for our redemption. Now, if you grew up in church, you know the story. You can see it in your mind's eye, even as I read the scripture this morning. Barabbas and Jesus being paraded out before the crowds. Pilate is saying, which one do you want? It's interesting here as we look at the contrast. One was named Barabbas. Barabbas. Literally, that word or name means son of a father. So notoriously ruthless that he was not even claimed by his own dad. He was a thief. He was a murderer. He was sentenced to die and rightly so for his crimes against the people. On the other hand, we have Jesus by stark contrast. He was pure. He was without spot or blemish. Not even Pilate. Nor Herod could find anything in the man worthy of death. However, Pilate chose to offer up a choice to the people. He says, I'll release one of these to you, and the other shall be sentenced to die. Whom shall I release? They shouted, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. On the other hand, they shouted for crucifixion as it pertained to Jesus. Crucify him. Crucify him. And you have to see him. Imagine that you're standing there in the crowds looking up at the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as he stood there bloodied up by the back room trials. We know already that Jesus was blindfolded and punched in his face repeatedly as the people said, prophesy who just hit you. We know that his beard was plucked out of his face. We understand that Jesus now is standing before the crowds with a mock robe on. Blood already flowing. Dressed in mockery as a king before the people. And now we hear the People shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. What must have been going through the mind of Jesus? We cannot fathom. Here Jesus is listening to his own people whom he created. Shout for his death while demanding the freedom of a killer. What a scene. Here we have Jesus going to the cross that was actually carved out for Barabbas. Jesus took the place of Barabbas. This was only a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do for all who would believe. Jesus would, as our substitute, take our place on the cross. Where you and I, are y'all listening, say yes. Where you and I should die for our sins, rightly so. We've all sinned. The wages of sin is death. Where we should die for our crimes against a holy God, 2,000 years ago, Jesus took our place by dying for us. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Jesus bore our sins in his body and took upon himself our punishment as he died on the cross. In some sense, Barabbas was redeemed. That is, he was set free as if he had committed no crime whatsoever. See, redemption speaks of freeing someone from bondage, usually by paying a ransom. 
Jesus' life was being taken in place of Barabbas. Here again is a foreshadow of what God the Father was doing for us. God was giving His Son Jesus up for us. Jesus was paying our ransom back to God the Father. He was paying our sin debt and satisfying the wrath of God by offering Himself up as the payment for our sin. Jesus redeemed us by His blood. Jesus freed us from the bondage of our own sin and death. Ephesians 1 and 7, the Bible says, In Jesus we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. In Titus 2 and 14, the Bible says, Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Jesus, look at the preacher eyeball to eyeball, came as a baby, lived a sinless life so that he could die on the cross for you. This is not some random historical event. This is God, our creator, making a pathway for you to be redeemed, for you to be forgiven, for your sin to be washed away. For you to be seen by God in the anvils of judgment as righteous as the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's been offered to you. Yet people still reject it, don't they? No, I'll find another way. No. There is one God. One mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. That's the gift. It's like, what is Christmas all about? It's the gift of God to the world. That's the gift. Do you receive that gift? Well, I've been in church all my life. No, no. You receive the gift? Well, I'm, I'm pretty, I've been baptized. I'm a pretty good guy. Have you received the gift? When you receive the gift, Christ becomes king in your life, and you are changed. Life changed. And if you've not experienced that, you do not know the Jesus of the Bible. He changes you. He does this by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. And the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, the old's gone, the new's come. So every single day you're changing. You're becoming more and more like Christ. The Bible says He makes you zealous for good deeds. You weren't zealous before till God came to live inside of you. So if you sit there and you say, there's no zeal in my life. There's no passion for Christ in my life. Christ isn't there. Wake up, man. You don't know Christ. But the door's still open. Still opportunity. And some people right now are trying so hard to convince themselves that this message is not for them. Be careful. It's a fearful thing as Hebrews teaches to fall into the hands of an angry God. Be careful if you deny Jesus Christ, the one whose eyes are like fire, the one who will sit upon the great white throne in judgment of the world and dare your sin be exposed, every thought, every word, every deed, and every single law you have broken brought right before Christ. Nothing for you to say then. Grace is still available now. Why would you reject that? 
makes no sense to me. Uh, well, I think, I, I think I'm good, preacher. I think I'm all right. think I'm good. think I'm probably saved. Hey, hey, if you came up to me and said, hey, Levi, are you married? Could you imagine if I looked at you and said, uh, I think I am. Uh, pretty much, I think I, I think I got a wife at the house. Uh, that'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? No, I know I'm married. Do you know Christ? I think I do. I think. When you come to know Christ, you will know Him. First John is written so that you might know Him. The call is out there. Somebody respond. Let's bow. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for the great privilege of delivering the gospel. Help us as a church never to grow dull of sharing this good news. And even now, we pray you'd speak to hearts. Your heads bowed, your eyes closed. You're in here today, and you don't know if you're a...